pray for God to illumine our hearts. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to turn in the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians, of course, is the letter after First Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter one. I'll be reading from verse twelve through chapter two, verse four. Hear now the word of the Lord. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. May God bless the reading of his word. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We think of the joy of being with the Lord. We get to be with him. 
our Savior who loved us and gave his life for us. What a joy. We also think of the joy of being together with one another, all those we love. God will surely call home all his people into the blessedness of fellowship with him and with one another. And in this regard, we might think of that famous Westminster Shorter Catechism, question answer one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's joy there. Did you know Heidelberg has something similar to say? It says we were made for eternal happiness. Eternal happiness. Question and answer six says that God made us that we might live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. We were made for joy with him. And you see that his glory is entirely consistent with our joy. Yet when we compare these thoughts of heaven, the joy that will be there, compare that to our life now, seems to be a gap. Our lives are filled with conflict, difficulty in relationships, even within the church. This gap between the joy we will certainly have in unity with God and one another and our experience now calls for us then to work for joy, work towards the goal of joy. And it's not a working to earn it, It's a working to live within the realities which Christ has earned for us. This working towards joy is the language that Paul uses here in verse 24. He says, we work with you for your joy. You see, there are different actors in this work for joy, and those are the two headings by which we'll look at this passage. First, God is working for your joy. And second, ministers are working for your joy. Only two points. I'm sorry, I don't have three. Um, It seems three points is sacred. I don't know. It must have to do with the Trinity. In my defense, Christ has two natures. He's human and divine, so two is also a good number. Well, the structure of the passage before us is like a sandwich. It starts out with Paul's interpersonal conflict with the Corinthian church. And then he goes on this theological tangent, these deep, rich truths. And then he goes back to talking about these interpersonal problems he has with this church. It's like a sandwich. At the center is this rich theology in verses 20 to 22. And that's where we'll begin. God is working for your joy. He's made promises to you Promises of blessing for your good, yes, even for your joy. Paul has this wonderful, memorable line here that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. What a great line. But the natural question we might have is which promises exactly? Which promises are yes in Christ? And the simple answer is that 
the promises that God has made by way of covenant throughout the scriptures. God has made promises. There's one other place in 2 Corinthians that Paul uses this word promises. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, and he's referencing what he just said at the end of chapter 6, where he uses what's known as the covenant formula. I will be your God, and you will be my people. He even uses rich family language. God says, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. So we know that when Paul uses the word promises, he's thinking about covenant, how God has bound himself to his people. He has promised to bless. So we know that because the Father made you promises for blessing, for your joy, we know that also the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished securing this blessing for you. That the Holy Spirit then seals it to you. There's a rich Trinitarian theology here in these verses. Well, let's explore these covenants of promise and see how God has been working for your joy all along. We can start at the beginning of the scriptures with creation. God created all that there is in six days, and then he entered his rest. And in the same way, he held forth that promise of rest to Adam. If he should just obey, do his work to subdue the earth, then he too may enter God's rest. See, even from the beginning, God held out the promise of blessedness, fellowship with him, eternal happiness. Of course, Adam did not do this. Adam failed in his vocation, and so doing plunged himself and all his posterity into death condemnation. Yet even with God's pronouncement of curse came a promise. Genesis 3.15 He said a son would come who would crush the serpent's head. He would not succumb to temptation, but he would obey perfectly as Adam was supposed to. God made a promise to bring his people into the blessing of rest and joy by the way of one to come. And so we know that God entered his rest in the sense of creation, but as Jesus said, he's always been working for redemption. Or consider next Abraham. God made promises to Abraham by way of covenant. He promised him a land to call home. He promised him offspring, a multitude as numerous as the stars. He said that all nations would be blessed through him. In Romans 4, Paul puts it that God promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world. Well, in a certain sense, God kept this promise when he brought the nation of Israel into the promised land. God made further prominent promises through his covenant to Israel for prosperity in the promised land if, if 
only they should obey him. It turns out that's a big if. Because like us, Israel was miserable sinners. They would not keep God's covenant. The promises God made to Israel were good, but they were only a shadow of true blessing. Long life in the promised land is a good thing, but it's no eternal life. Even Abraham himself lived as a pilgrim on the earth, longing not for a mere earthly home, for a heavenly one. As Hebrews 11 tells us, all those great people of faith throughout Israel's history never received what was promised, since God had something better. You know, we could look at God's covenant with David. He promised him to build him a house, that is, his sons would rule. He would never lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And yet there too is a condition, if they would walk uprightly. And so what happened? Solomon's sons did not walk uprightly. We have schism in the nation. Well, you might be able to tell where all this is going. God made promises for blessing. But who would deserve the blessing? Adam failed. Israel failed. David's sons failed. Who is there to deserve this blessing? Where is the son who was promised to come? You see, Jesus Christ is that son. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne, the king who rules forever, the one in whom all nations are blessed. Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience, which Adam did not. And in that obedience, Jesus earned all the promised blessings. In his sacrificial death at the cross, Jesus bore the curse for sin that we deserve. And in his resurrection, never to die again, he led the way into that eternal Sabbath rest. You see, in ourselves, all the promises of God are no. But in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes because he deserves them. You see, this is how all nations will be blessed through Abraham. Jesus Christ, his descendant by blood, by his obedience, earns all blessing. But we, by faith, are joined to him, and we become heirs with him of the blessings he earned for us. And so by faith, regardless of ancestry, regardless of whether you're male or female, slave or free, we become heirs to his blessings. If you are Christ by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We have in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have in him justification, Adoption, sanctification, certain hope of glorification. 
We have all blessings in Him. Furthermore, Paul goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit in this passage in verse 22. He put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, the Holy Spirit Himself indwelling us is one of the promised blessings. In the midst of Israel's repeated disobedience, God promised that He would write His law not on stone tablets, but on the human heart. Jeremiah prophesied to this effect, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel explains that God would do this by way of his indwelling spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, following Christ's work, this giving of the Holy Spirit has come. And it works like a down payment, he says, a guarantee, a down payment. You know how this works in business and financial transactions? In buying a home, for example, you pay a down payment. It's an initial lump sum as a show of good faith that you'll pay the rest. The giving of the Holy Spirit is like that. He is a guarantee of more blessing to come. He's only the initial down payment. And you see, this is where things like the prosperity gospel fail. We say, which promises has God said yes to? He has not promised all that you desire. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, He has not promised those things. Should we desire them? But He has given us all spiritual blessings in Christ. And we know this because the Spirit is a down payment He has not said, I've given you all of it now. He said, I've given you the down payment, the Spirit. It's a promise of more blessing to come in heaven. You see, the giving of the Spirit Himself is part of the promised blessings. And that is a wonderful gift. But it also points us to the fact that there's more gifts to come. So you see how all through the history of redemption, God has been orchestrating everything to bring about your salvation in Jesus Christ. He's been working for your joy. And if you consider even the circumstances of your own life, how God has sovereignly brought you to himself. He's brought you to hear the gospel. He's given you his spirit enabled you to believe and to love him. Indeed, God has been working for your joy to bring you into his eternal Sabbath rest. There's some rich theology in verses 20 to 22 that we've been talking about, and that's just some of it. It shows how God has been working to bring about the fulfillment of his promises for you, for your good, for the good of his people, for your joy. Secondly, let's consider how ministers work for your joy. 
We'll do that by looking at these interpersonal issues that Paul's having with this Corinthian church, the outsides of the sandwich. You see, Paul is a model of a minister of the gospel, worked for the joy of God's people. Paul planted the church in Corinth. He ministered there for about a year and a half to disciple these new believers before moving on with further church planning missions. But it seems there was growing discord between Paul and this church. Uh, It seems at least some of them, anyway. Some rival preachers rose up, and Paul sarcastically calls them the super-apostles. The heart of the matter, it seems, as Paul diagnosed it, is that the Corinthians were evaluating people by worldly standards. They were drawn to these super-apostles for their public speaking skills, for their appearance. You compare them to Paul, well, Paul's not all that much to look at. We don't know what he looked like, but there is one second-century description of him. Small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that met, rather long-nosed, and full of grace. That last part is somehow supposed to redeem the rest of it. I don't know. But you see, they were sizing people up by their external appearance. We see this as Paul quotes their criticism of him later in the letter. They say that his letters are weighty, but his presence is weak. He seems so strong when he writes these letters, and then he shows up, and he's kind of pathetic. His public speaking skills are not like the other guys. And so Paul appealed to the Corinthians not to size people up by looking at outward appearances, but by the sincerity and genuineness of the heart. And that's what he labors to show them here, that he is sincere, that he doesn't labor according to worldly standards for selfish motivation. He labors for their joy, for them. Paul's kind of like a parent who gets no respect. He poured out his heart for these people. He endured persecution in order to get the gospel to them. He insisted on not taking any pay from them, instead of taking his support from other churches. And even within that, they suspected him. He doesn't take pay like those other guys. How good could he be? You get what you pay for, right? Besides, he keeps raising this offering. He's probably dipping into the offering fund. You can see how they would start to criticize him and suspect him like this. Yet he doesn't have selfish motives towards them. Verse 24 says he doesn't abuse his apostolic authority. We don't lord it over your faith. We work with you for your joy. Yet, what does he get in return from these people but contempt? Well, you see, the passage before us shows another sore spot between Paul and this church, and it has to do with his travel plans. 
He said he was going to stop by twice. You see it there in verse 16. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. So he was going to drop in twice. But it seems he changed his plans. He only came once. Apparently it was a painful first visit. The start of chapter 2. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. We don't know exactly why it was so painful. It could have something to do with an issue of church discipline, perhaps in regards to their criticism of him. At any rate, it shows us there's a growing rift between Paul and his church. It was painful. And of course, Paul's critics in Corinth picked up on Paul's change of plans and say, see that guy, it's not reliable. Can't trust him. He says yes and no at the same time. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. And so you can start to see why Paul went on this theological tangent that he did. He said, I don't say yes and no at the same time. When I ministered there, I always said yes, because my word to you was the word of the gospel, which you believed. I told you all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Yes. I ministered that word to you, and you believed. There's no sense here that Paul is doubting their faith. He says they stand firm in their faith. They believe the gospel he told them. So he's arguing that if they could believe the word of Christ, which he ministered to them, is it so hard to believe that he himself is reliable? And so Paul needs to explain his change of plans. He needs to defend his own truthfulness, the sincerity of his heart. He needs to confirm to them that he really loves them. And he does this with some very strong language, even swears an oath to God. He does it twice, in a sense. In verse 18, he says, As surely as God is faithful... That's a way of swearing upon the faithfulness of God. He says, God's faithful, and I'm telling the truth. Again in verse 23, I I call God to witness against me. He is in effect saying, may God's curse be upon me if I'm lying. We should be very careful of using this sort of language. Not using God's name in vain. And our Heidelberg Catechism helps us in this. And question 101 talks about when oaths are appropriate. It says we may do it when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. If anything, in this case, it demonstrates that Paul takes this matter very seriously. Would you just believe that I love you? Is it so hard to believe? I swear I'm telling the truth. He says his goal for writing to them there in verse 14. He says, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. I want you to realize that, he says. See, he's not expressing doubt. There is no jeopardy here of finding that joy in heaven together. He says, on the day of the Lord, when we are together in heaven, we will have joy together. 
That is a fact. If only you would realize it. He is thinking of when we all get to to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. But Paul's pointing out their inconsistency. If you truly understood that you will have unity and joy together in heaven, why can't we have that unity now? What should keep us as brothers and sisters in the Lord from living in the unity and joy that we will have on that day? And so because he loves them so much and has such joy with them, he wants to see them as much as possible. He was going to drop in twice. But because it was painful, he wasn't going to force the matter. So he changed his plans and didn't come that second time. So Paul is a minister of the gospel. Worked for the joy of God's people. That's what he's trying to tell them. I work for your joy. I don't lord it over your faith. This isn't about me. I don't work with selfish motives. I minister the gospel to you for your joy. He set an example for all ministers that they should labor with sincerity of heart, not with selfish worldly motives, not to lord it over the flock, but to labor for their joy. And this serves as a reality check to ministers that if the apostle couldn't secure an undivided congregation, we should at least have sober expectations. But what about the rest of us? We who are on the receiving end of gospel ministry, may we not be like the divided Corinthians. May we respond appropriately to gospel ministry with a love that anticipates the joy of being together in heaven. Hebrews 13 puts it this way, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this how, it says, with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you see, we are all called to work for the joy of the officers of the church. We all work for the joy of one another. So you see, beloved, God is working for your joy. We have this message of God's work for your joy in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And ministers are working for your joy, even as they declare that very message. As we anticipate the day of the Lord, the day we enter that eternal, blessed Sabbath rest, eternal happiness, as we anticipate that day in fellowship with God and with one another, may that thought cause us to live in such unity and joy even now. I close with the final statement of the Belgic Confession. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you reveal yourself through your works. You have made your power known in the works of creation. 
You have made your love, grace, mercy known in your works of redemption. Lord, we thank you that you have always been working for our joy to bring us home, to restore us, to save us out of the sin and the misery that we put ourselves into. Lord, we thank you that you accomplished redemption in Jesus Christ and you are applying it to us by your Spirit. For your gift of the down payment, the guarantee of more blessing to come in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we anticipate that day when we are together that it would cause us to have that same joy now. May we all live anticipating that day. We thank you so much for your work in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We'll invite you to turn to number 169 in the Psalter hymnal. It's a song of response. Number 169, we'll be singing stanzas 1, 2, and 9. That's the first two and the last, I believe, of 169. Standing as the music begins. <laughs> 